Hello and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director at Legal Aid of West Virginia. In this episode, we will be discussing guardian ad litems with Leah Smith, the supervising attorney in our Lewisburg office. Wouldn't be much of an attorney if I didn't start such a thing like this with a disclaimer. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia. This information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes only. While the host and guest attorneys Uh, We'll be providing information. This is legal information and will not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. Having said all that, I am Clint Adams. They let me host this podcast mostly because Jennifer Garner won't return calls for some reason. She's probably tied up with other responsibilities. And today we're going to talk with Leah Smith from the Lewisburg office. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning, Clint. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, we're excited to talk about guardian ad litem things, and we're excited to talk about Lewisburg. What <laughs> is something that's lots of fun and exciting to do in Lewisburg? Well, first, let me tell you that speaking of Jennifer Garner, I had her smoothie this morning. So if that's why I look so fit and ready to practice law, it's because I had Jennifer Garner's smoothie. It's a lot of almond butter she... and spinach. I didn't even know she had a smoothie. Well, you know. These are these are things that those are things that you know. One of our podcast goals is to educate, and today you have just educated me. Thank you for that. You're welcome. (laughs) You don't need your own personal trainer. You just need to know that Jennifer Garner has a smoothie recipe out there. I think that is probably going to make my life much better and and be a search engine search minutes from now. (laughs) Well, back to your actual question, which was what are fun things to do in my uh, hometown. I live in, uh, well, actually, I live in Ronsvert. Our our office is here in Lewisburg. We're in Greenbrier County. There are all kinds of um, great things. I love my area. It's beautiful. Um, one of my favorite, probably my favorite activity during as much of the year as I can, can do it is to have fun on the river, which we have a Greenbrier River that flows through our county. And I like to um, go swimming, go kayaking, take my kids down the river as much as possible. So if you're ever in the area, I highly recommend it. Do you bring them back up the river after you've taken them down the river just out of curiosity? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) funny story. My kids have been going on the river with me since they were very little. And I think on the, my youngest, my son, Oliver is very, he tends to be a little nervous. And the first time we took them on the river, we you know, stopped alongside to eat lunch at one point. And we were with some friends. So there was at least one other boat in our party and they took off ahead of us. And, you know, they got out of sight before we pulled back onto the river and Oliver nervously turned around and asked me and he said, mom, are you sure you're going the right way? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I always bring them back after the trip. Well, if you would have lost one of your children, they may need a guardian ad litem appointed to them um, because they may be in a situation. (laughs) That's that's what we call in the business a segue. Um, so what is a guardian ad litem? So, Clint, a guardian ad litem is someone who is appointed during a legal case to represent the interests of someone who is at a disadvantage, um, be that because they're a minor um, or because they're incarcerated or for whatever reason, they're not someone who um, can fully represent themselves. 
So recently we talked about guardianship, like getting legal guardianship of a child. This is not the same thing, correct? It is not. So the term guardian ad litem, the part there at the end, ad litem is there to tell you it's just for the the during the suit itself. It's not a guardian for the rest of this child's life um, as another guardian who would be appointed by the court would be. This is a guardian who is appointed for the specific surface purpose rather of um, of representing this person or during the course of the, the lawsuit. So they would not be someone who would make legal decisions for the child or anything like that. They're just an officer of the court. Is that correct? That's correct. And as part of being an officer of the court, it's uh, their job to investigate uh, things that are happening around the child. Is that a fair statement? Yes, typically you're going to see a guardian ad litem appointed by the court, sometimes at the request of the parents, but um, often just appointed by the, the court itself, by the judge. When there are issues that the court feels like it's at a disadvantage and needs more information about, um, so the guardian ad litem is um, tasked with the job of investigating and making a report to the court. Um, they in typically investigate by talking to people you know, involved with the, the child's life, etc. When you say the court, is that the family court, the circuit court? What courts are we talking about? It could be either. Again, we're talking about practice here in West Virginia. Um, guardians can be utilized in both family court and circuit court. So, Leah, let's break that down a little bit. You talk about um, both the family court and the circuit court. Let's uh, jump up about 10,000 feet. What's the role? What's the difference between the family court and the circuit court when you're talking about when they would appoint a guardian ad litem? Family courts here in West Virginia handle cases as the name connotes, that have to do with families. You're dealing with divorces, custody cases, um, guardianship cases for minors, uh, child support cases, things like that. So when the family court appoints a guardian ad litem or when a guardian is appointed in a family court case, it's usually to um, represent the int best interests of a minor, of a child that's involved in that case. Um, in circuit court, you would typically only have a guardian uh, ad litem in a specific type of case called an abuse and neglect case. There are special instances when a guardianship case can be filed in circuit court, but um, there's a very specific type of case in circuit court having to do with abuse and neglect of minor children, in which case a guardian would also be represent, would be appointed. Sure, we talked a little bit about guardianships earlier. So those, when those would be filed in circuit court, those could also uh, garner a guardian ad litem. Certainly. Let's talk a little bit about family court then as we as we talk about a guardian ad litem in a family court setting. What are some of the kinds of cases you're going to see that? Would that would that be appointed if you just had a divorce case? No, not typically. I mean, it's a special it's special for a guardian to be appointed. It's not a, a necessary thing in every case. Um, you'll typically see a guardian appointed where the parents are having a disagreement or dispute about how custody should be shared between the parents, especially where, I mean, that if that alone exists, that doesn't necessarily mean the court has to appoint a guardian, but you'll most often see one appointed where there are allegations of abuse or even if it doesn't rise to the full level of abuse, if they're, you know, one par parent is saying the other parent can't safely parent the child because of this, or I don't think that the home is a safe place, or, you know, you'll, so you'll typically see it when there are some quote unquote bad stuff going on that one party is alleging into, uh, of the other. 
So that could include things like domestic violence allegations, or if there's allegations of drug use from one party, something like that. Would that would those be the situations you might see a guardian ad litem? Absolutely. Those are probably the two most common scenarios in which you'll see a guardian appointed. And the guardian ad litem then is going to investigate to see um, what's been going on with that child. Who might they talk to in this investigation? So the judge can appoint a guardian to do a very broad and general investigation or a very specific investigation tailored toward some very specific allegation. Um, so I guess you'd first look to see, you know, what is the scope of the guardian's appointment and what are they being asked to do? Most often it'll be a broad and general appointment saying, look, there have been some allegations, but we'd like you to look into um, the circumstances as a whole in this child or children's lives investigate and make a recommendation back to me as to what you believe to be in this child's best interest with regard to custody, for instance. Um, to, to do their investigation, most guardians will will speak to the child, uh, assuming the child is old enough to, you know, get, you know, some actual information from it. Obviously, for an infant, you're not going to talk to the infant. Um, you should meet with the infant and lay eyes on the child every in every case. Um, but so the guardian would would talk to the child as if that's going to be helpful. Also, all the people surrounding that child, obviously each parent involved, um, grandparents, counselors, teachers, other community members that, that might be um, involved in that child's life, like a scout leader or uh, something like that. So the, the guardian really can talk to any number of people, review documents, medical records, school records, things like that um, to conduct their in investigation. Now, Leah, you've been a guardian ad litem. You mentioned some of those things that you would investigate as far as records, maybe even psychological records, uh, things of that nature. And, and you talked about the importance of talking with the child. Um, what, what age would you say you're going to get any information out of a child? Well, I mean, you can talk to a child that's three years old. Um, I don't think you're going to get a lot uh of helpful information from a child that young, probably more when they get to be um, five, six, uh, seven in that realm, you you definitely want to, I mean, you can certainly get a lot of information from a child of that age. Um, it's really a, you know, a case by case decision. And it also heavily depends on what, what the allegations or what the circumstances are. You know, if you're just asking a child to describe their home, um, you can get a lot of information from a five-year-old child um, to get a good idea of what their, their home life is like and who the people are that are around them. How do you direct those questions? Because you're dealing with young children. You, you don't want to prejudice their answers or anything like that. So when you've been a guardian ad litem, how do you approach that? I guess I pull a lot from my own experience with my children. Um, but, you know, you try and put them in a setting that is less formal than you might normally speak with your your regular clients. You know, you want to put the children at ease. You don't want to make yourself. I, I try to just personalize myself, humanize myself with them, let them know, hey, look, I'm a mom. I'm, you know, I'm a regular person. I'm not a scary individual. Give them an opportunity to look around your office if that's where you're meeting with them. Um, ask questions. I usually explain a lot about court procedure before we even get into talking about the details of their case, just to kind of demystify the process for them, because it can be very confusing or daunting for a child who doesn't really understand what's going on. So I would typically spend a lot of time preparing them and explaining to them what they can expect and what what's really going on and what everyone's roles are. So I just tried to build a rapport with them first, and I probably wouldn't 
try to get a lot of information on a first initial appointment or meeting with the child. You really want to just spend some time building that relationship up before you delve into some tougher questions. So after you've gone through all of that, you've interviewed the child, you've talked to the parents, you've talked to the school, you've reviewed maybe some medical records or anything like that, you, you've gone through all that, what does the guardian ad litem then do? Typically, most guardians are then required to submit a written report um, summarizing their, you know, the, the investigation that they've done and their recommendation to the court on the question that they've been asked to help decide, which is usually, um, you know, the question of what do you believe is in this child's best interest with regard to custody. So you give that report to the court and to typically to both both parties, to both parents and their counsel so that they can review it before a hearing in the case. And then what effect does that report have? Is that Does that decide all the issues between the parties? It does not. Um, the, the, the final decision ultimately rests with the judge. It is, again, just a recommendation that the guardian makes to the court. In my experience, the guardian's recommendation carries a lot of weight. You know, the, the judge has appointed an attorney for this purpose, and they, you know, they, uh, the court appoints attorneys who are trained to do this type of work. So, you know, they already know that they're who they're appointing and they can trust the person to, to do an investigation and, and recommendation that they can rely upon. Um, so typically you will, in my experience, the judges um, give a lot of uh, weight to a guardian's recommendation, but it is not the final word. The judge can always make minor or major modifications to the recommendation that the guardian makes. What happens if you disagree with the guardian ad litem? If you're, let's say you're representing yourself and the guardian ad litem recommends something that you disagree with, what should you do? Well, if you were representing yourself, um, I mean, kind of the same as I would do if I were the attorney representing the person, I would first reach out to the guardian if, for instance, I see factual allegations in the report that I think are incorrect. You know, I would recommend that someone reach out to the guardian, give them a call and say, you know, I, I looked at your report, I've read through it, and here's a few things I, I saw that you said that I think are inaccurate. And here's, you know, if I can remind you, here's the conversation we had about that, or here's someone that you could talk to to correct your misunderstanding about that, or here's some documents that I have that show that, you know, X is actually Y. So I would always recommend um, first trying to talk to the guardian, might have just been a mistake, or see if there's any, if you don't like their recommendation and you think they just didn't talk to enough people um, on, you know, that support your side, you could also provide a list of additional witnesses um, or provide additional documentation or other evidence for the guardian to review that you think might be helpful in persuading them otherwise. Um, and finally, you know, if you can't sway the guardian's decision before court, you always have the opportunity at court to let the judge know, I don't agree with this recommendation and here's why. So will the guardian ad litem then be a witness at the court hearing? Yes. The guardian will typically be there in person, uh, just like any other witness, and the judge and the parties are both able to ask the guardian questions um, about their recommendation. If you were going to bring things up that maybe the guardian ad litem didn't mention in the recommendation between the court, I, I think one tip that I always tell people when they're representing themselves, go in with a notepad of the things that are really important because you're going to be nervous when that happens so that you can make sure that you ask the questions that you want to. And the judge will give you time. If you say, judge, can I have a second to look at my notes? The judge will always give you time to do that so that you can make sure and flush out those important questions. Um, that's some advice I give to my clients. Is that advice you would agree with? Absolutely. I mean, especially if someone is representing themselves or pro se, 
the judge doesn't typically, in my experience, require them to have a formal presentation of evidence that they might, you know, expect of an attorney. So um, it's very helpful, like you said, if I just advise people, make a list of the important, you know, the five most important things you want to don't, you know, you don't want to forget to let the judge know about or to bring up before the judge so that in case you get in there and you're extremely nervous, you can just look down and read your paper. Um, but yeah, I would just encourage people that if they don't agree with a recommendation, it's not a given, especially if it's just something minor like, well, I agree with the overall recommendation, but this holiday schedule isn't going to work for us at all. It's not how our families typically have done this. I would request a, this modification. If it's something like that, absolutely bring it up because just because the guardian has recommended it doesn't mean it's what the judge has to do. Now, if the guardian ad litem makes a recommendation that you do agree with, um, what would you do in a situation like that? Well, I would typically not say a whole lot um, other than just, to, you know, you might want to reiterate it. as the attorney. I would usually just say you, you feel like you've done a thorough investigation. You spoke to parties from, you know, both sides. Um, you feel like your, your report reflects an accurate um, summary of the history and what really matters to this child. And you think you think your recommendation is in the child's best interest. I would leave it to something very simple like that and don't give them a lot of opportunity to for anything else to come up. But, you know, especially if the guardian's recommendation is is you're on board with it and it's in your favor, you're already, you know, head and tails above the other side. When you get to court, you can kind of you don't have an, as much to worry about. Now, let's talk about the guardian ad litem in a circuit court setting. We mentioned there might be a guardianship happening in circuit court. So how sure. would a guardianship differ in circuit court between family court? So a guardianship case um, in West Virginia, family courts and circuit courts have what we call concurrent jurisdiction to handle guardianship cases, um, which means simply that both courts have the power to, to handle those types of cases. Most often you will see guardianships filed in family court, but there are certain circumstances in which they must be filed in circuit court, and that would be a circumstance where either the children have been subjects of a previous abuse and neglect case in circuit court, in which case all subsequent cases regarding custody of those children have to be filed in, in circuit court, or sometimes you'll see a guardianship case that starts in family court, but there are very serious, incredible allegations of, of abuse and or neglect or domestic violence where either one of the parties requests that it get referred to circuit court or the judge can, um, of his or her own accord, refer the case to circuit court because the circuit court, again, is the case with exclusive jurisdiction to handle cases of, of abuse and neglect. Otherwise, a guardianship case filed in circuit court, even if there are very serious allegations of abuse and neglect, it's going to follow, it's going to look a lot the same, and the guardian's role is going to be largely the same as it would be if the case were being handled in family court. If uh, if the court does believe that there are abuse and neglect allegations, or they ask C CPS, which is Child Protective Services, to do an investigation, they come back and, and determine that there's some concerns then, how would they proceed in the circuit court setting? Well, they could um, end up filing a if they if they do substantiate um, abuse and neglect. Um, it's very possible that the state would then pursue the filing of an abuse and neglect case. An abuse and neglect case is filed typically by the, the state against parents alleging that they don't believe the children are safe in the home of the parents or in the care of the parents for whatever reason. Um, in today's world here in West Virginia, very often that is because one or both parents are addicted to drugs and because of that are not capable of safely raising the children. 
when an abuse and neglect case is filed, what the state is asking is, is seeking to do is the, they remove the children and the parents are required to fix the problem or else um, they face the termination of their parental rights. So in that sense, the stakes go way up if you're in circuit court and an abuse and neglect case is filed. So when an abuse and neglect case is filed, there would be a guardian ad litem appointed to represent the child. If there's three or four children, is there always a separate guardian ad litem for each one or do sometimes the guardian ad litem represent the interest of all of the children? Typically, the guardian, there would be one guardian for all the children. I guess there could be a circumstance where you'd have multiple guardians ad litem, but I think usually you would see the same guardian. All the parents would have their own attorney appointed to them in an abuse and neglect case. They have that absolute right to be represented. Since again, the stakes are much higher, they face the possible termination of their parental rights. You don't have that right in, in family court. Um, when you're just dealing with custody. But if you're involved in a circuit court abuse and neglect case, all the parents and the children have an absolute right to have an attorney. So when you have an attorney in that situation, you've been both the attorney uh, when there were was a guardian ad litem appointed and you've been a guardian ad litem. What advice do you give to the clients of the attorney? Um, if you have an attorney, how should they proceed in their interactions with the guardian ad litem? Right. So the guardian is going to do, again, a lot of the same investigation they would do if you're in a family court case, but I would advise a person who is a um, what they call an adult respondent in an abuse and neglect case um, to not speak to the guardian without their attorney present. It's just that the stakes are so much higher and you, you know, you don't want to risk them doing something that would be against their own interest, just not even knowing just because they didn't understand what was going on. Now, when the guardian ad litem, they're going to do the same investigation in the circuit court setting in an abuse and neglect case, right? They're going to talk to the same people, potentially talk to the parents, talk to the schools, talk to the doctors that may have treated them. Sometimes when there's an abuse and neglect situation, there may be medical records that would substantiate some of the acts of abuse or things of that nature. Um, and then how would their report be different? Um, it wouldn't. It's largely the same. Again, the process is largely the same in circuit court. You're just making that investigation and giving that recommendation in a written form to the judge. The procedures are, are different. Abuse and neglect cases tend to um, involve a lot of meetings throughout the course of the case with all the parties called MDTs, multidisciplinary teams that convene at regular times to, to meet and kind of check on the progress of, of how the parents are doing um, as far as rehabilitating whatever the conditions were that gave rise to the children being removed. So you'll see a lot more meetings of the parties um, and maybe more interim reports from the guardian ad litem because the cases just tend to, to take longer. Um, but overall, the process is really much the same. Now, will the guardian ad litem, if the child's been in counseling before or even after the filing of the abuse and neglect case with the guardian ad litem, be able to get that information even though it may be confidential? Yes, typically most um, orders that appoint um, the guardian will provide that the guardian should be allowed access to um, information that would otherwise be privileged and only available to the parents. But in my experience, usually the judge will put a specific term in the order appointing the guardian that says, please be advised you are required to give access to this information to this person for this purpose. Once they have access to that information, they may not share it with all the parties, but they can certainly use it to inform their recommendation. 
Now, we in the law like to use words like guardian ad litem because it makes us sound fancy and smart, I think, is, is the conclusion that I've reached. Um, so we sometimes use that same word in other settings where maybe there's not a child involved and there may be adults involved and also have guardian ad litems appointed. What are some situations where that may be applicable? So you'll most often see that in a case where, um, or I have most often seen it in a case where someone is incarcerated, a party is, you know, in jail or in prison, and because of that, they are not uh, able to participate in the case as they would if they were, you know, a civilian. The the whole purpose of a guardian um, is to help someone out, represent someone, be the defender for someone who's at a disadvantage. So in the case of children, they're at a disadvantage because they are minors. In the case of an incarcerated person, it's because they're just not able to fully participate in the proceedings. Likewise, the court can appoint a guardian for someone who is mentally incapacitated or otherwise not not capable of participating fully and meaningfully in the proceedings. So you would, you, again, those are probably the three um, most common times that you will see a guardian ad litem appointed, either for a child, a mentally incapacitated person, or for an incarcerated individual. If we're dealing with an incarcerated individual, is the guardian ad litem then going to make a report? I mean, are they going to be asserting the innocence of someone who may be incarcerated, or is their role different? Um, I would say their role is a little different. They're they're really just there to um, make sure that the person's uh, interests are not being taken. The person isn't being taken advantage of, and that they are capable of um, because they have this person who can be there, go interview them and meet with them, and then report back to the court and be there to protect their interests. That um, you know that they're able to participate in the process. Um, they don't always necessarily have to advocate for everything the person might might want. And now when you talk about um, a guardian ad litem for an incapacitated adult, this would be someone who the, the doctors or the courts have deemed lacks capacity to make decisions on their own. Is that, do I understand that correctly? Yes. Okay. I mean, I've seen it done even if there wasn't a, a true medical diagnosis. Anytime the court is concerned that the person might not be you know, able to fully participate because of some sort of incapacity, the court has that discretion to appoint a guardian. And that guardian is going to be an attorney, but do sometimes people have a guardian ad litem and an attorney as well? And when would you see something like that? Usually you'll see that in a situation where um, the guardian is there to make sure the person's, what they deem best interests are, are protected. Um, you will often see a a dispute between the person and their guardian as to what their best interests are or what they what they want. So if that's the case, if there's a conflict where the guardian isn't doing necessarily what the person wants because they want something else, but the guardian says, I don't I don't think that's the right thing for you. I don't I don't think that's in your best interests. Um, the court can appoint an attorney separate a separate person from the guardian ad litem to actually represent the person and, and to do what that person wants or to ask the court for what that person wants. So that's where you most often see that. So sometimes the guardian ad litem and the protected person will have differing opinions about what should be done. And what the that's judge right. may say is, I want I want to hear the fair story from both sides of these and um, and we'll get a better chance to tell that story if that a protected person has an attorney as well as a guardian ad litem. That's right. I mean, because the role is a little uh, is different for a guardian ad litem. You're you're responsible to report back to the court um, again, and you're you're charged with determining 
what you believe to be in the person's best interest. The attorney doesn't have that obligation. They are, they're, they're there to zealously represent and advocate for their client. So you could have two different goals. So we talk a lot about guardian ad litems, particularly for people who are, say, under the age of 18, because legally you're not permitted to make decisions under the age of 18. Um, there are times, as I understand it, when a guardian ad litem would not be appointed and maybe just a parent would be there to represent the, the child's interest. Tell us a little bit about that. So sometimes, um, I, I think you'll most often see this where uh, you've got a teenager, but a, a minor, anyone under the age of 18, doesn't have standing to file his or her own lawsuit. But sometimes you'll see um, a minor, let's say a 15-year-old, who um, is in need of a domestic violence protective order. What you'll typically see, since the minor can't um, file their own lawsuit, you would have a, someone called a next friend who would be an adult who files on their behalf. Um, it's not quite the same, or it's definitely not the same. It's it's not because the 16 or 15 year old can't really express what you know he or she wants. Um, it's just really because a, a minor did not typically have standing to file their own lawsuit. Likewise, I've seen it in custody cases where, like it or not, we have teenagers who have had children and you have their parents filing as next friend on behalf of the minor child involved. But it is a, it's a bit different than a guardian, a true guardian ad litem. Typically, a next friend is not an attorney. It's, it's simply that. It's a, a family member or close friend who's doing it on behalf of the minor. So how does that next friend get selected? Well, in my experience, it's usually someone that is, it's selected by the minor themselves. It's usually someone that reaches out to, you know, an older brother or a, um, a good friend to say, hey, will you help me do this? I need a protective order against my dad, for instance. Um, the court could also appoint a next friend if if need be. So if, uh, if a 16-year-old showed up to file something, would the court just let them file or would they just immediately appoint them a guardian ad litem or do they typically show up with an adult then who takes on that role of next friend? Um, it's my understanding that they can actually, in West Virginia now, a minor should not be turned away and does have standing to file, say, a protective order. But I think most often um, the practice would be um, – to recommend that they have a next friend file with them, again, because they are a minor. And while they might be an older minor, they're still a minor. And the court always wants to make sure that that people's interests are being protected and that people, you know, have so that a 16 year old, um, while they might be very mature, are still probably not um, capable of making um, each and every decision that might need to be made in a case that's really important. So the court would would likely require or want them to have a next friend file with them just to make sure there's someone there to kind of shepherd them through the process and make sure that that um, they truly understand everything that's happening. Well, Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. I think we've uh, fleshed out some really important information and it was a pleasure spending some time with you. Thank you, Clint. If you'd like more information on this topic, visit our website at LegalAidWV.org.